بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فقد قال الله سبحانه وتعالى في القرآن المجيد بعد عوض بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألف لاميم أحسب الناس أن يتركوا أن يقولوا آمنا وهم لا يفتنون ولقد فتن الذين من قبلهم فلا يعلمن الله الذين صدقوا ولا يعلمن الكاذبين صدق الله العظيم My respected elders, brothers, sisters, students, and friends. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome all of you tonight, our regulars, our students, as well as those brothers who've come from out of the area to attend the seminar. And this is something that is definitely very pertinent and very, very relevant to the speaker himself, number one, and to all of us here in the audience. Uh, an issue that has become ever so prevalent that the epidemic is even not the, is not the right word to describe it. It has become as common and as widespread as water or air. And this is something that we are all living through an age, the information age. And this information age has been ushered in very quickly after the various revolutions that took place, the industrial revolution in this past century, and other things, the information age came about kind of unnoticed, unprepared. And the Muslim community, like many other communities, was not prepared. We do not know, we weren't taught, possibly, of how we are going to react and act about this, with this new change this new conditions that have come about the community, that has made the world into the global village. So the challenges that you and I face in Chicago, that our youth face at college, that students face who are studying in the islands, in the Caribbeans, those same challenges, if I may say, and I may claim, and I don't think I'm wrong, are almost as prevalent and as equal to those who are residing in the blessed holy cities of Mecca and Medina. If not the same, then definitely very, very close. And all of that, shatana baynahuma. Where is Mecca? Where is Medina? Where is Chicago, Las Vegas, New York, and the Caribbeans? But there's one thing that has brought us two opposite cities, two opposite ends of the world together in one platform, in one place. And that is the world of technology that we live in, of communications, that has made the world, in a true sense, one scary, evil, and dirty place to live in. Wherever you go, many a times a person says, after hearing certain things, you may say, man, I need to move, I need to, I need to run away from this. Where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to? Wherever you go, wherever you go, you're going to meet up with the same problems. I'm someone who has been blessed to go to the blessed cities many times, alhamdulillah. I'm a witness to that, year in and year out. And I can gauge as, an, as a, you know, a spectator, as a normal haji, of the changes that are taking place. 
between the communications, between the general public, the taxi drivers, the youth, the security guards. It doesn't go unnoticed what it has done, subhanAllah al-Azim. We're sitting in Mecca and Medina. We're sitting in the Mas'a. We're sitting in the Mataf. And a person is guarding, supervising. He is a khadim. He is an attendant in the Haram Sharif. But his eyes are glued not to the Kaaba, but to his phone. And not the best of things in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where are you going to run? You can't. So the, the solution to these problems is first and foremost recognizing that there is a problem. Which most of us haven't recognized yet. And number two, is that addressing it in a proper manner based on what the sunnah has taught us. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, we are not orphans. We have the Qur'an and sunnah. That there isn't a problem of this world that the Qur'an and sunnah hasn't already addressed and hasn't already presented a solution. But we have to search in it. And we have to have faith that the answer lies within there. And the one who has that faith and begins to look for answers in the Qur'an and sunnah, I guarantee and I promise you, you'll find it. And the one who shies away from these two sources, and the offshoots of these two sources, then he will continue to lead his life blind, deaf, and dumb, completely lost in layers of darkness. So today we present to you this program, and we hope inshallah ta'ala, that this becomes a means of the presenters themselves gaining some insight and learning how to protect themselves and their children and their families. And along with that, we hope that those who are present here, whether they are listening uh, here or online, that inshallah ta'ala, this becomes a source of inspiration for you and a wake-up call. They are, they, the, 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 the issue at hand is so immediate, is so severe, that we should have had the need to put the tents outside. I swear by Allah. Yes. Upstairs and downstairs. This is more important than a khatm al-Quran 27th night. The issue here, you could make khatm at home. You could, you could pray at home on that night if there was no space. But an issue like this, which no one's speaking about, which is affecting everyone, the most righteous homes of our community have been affected. Those homes in which there are ulama and huffal, those homes in which there are imams, those homes in which every single person in that family for the past generations came from a very, what we call Sharif Khanan, very righteous, noble families. All of that, subhanAllah, is fallen apart. And not just here, everywhere. So let us make the most of this, and we ask Allah collectively, that Ya Allah, you inspire us, with, uh, uh, inspire the speakers to say what is beneficial for all of us, and give us, those who are sitting here and listening, give us the correct desire and the talab, so that we can benefit from what is being said. The first part is uh, going to be presented by Dr. Rafi Ali, who is a uh, local gastroenterologist, practicing gastroenterologist, whose son is a student at Darussalam, a second year alim student. He also finished his hifz over here. Alhamdulillah. And Dr. Ali himself, uh, I would say, is a student, definitely a student of knowledge, and almost a student of knowledge here. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for him to uh, continue his, his, his studies. Uh, he has a passion for uh, this topic. And, and, and this is why I asked him 
And mashallah, I, I appreciate uh, his effort in preparing the material. And I can tell you, a lot of effort is put into uh, preparing for this night. Uh, not only spiritual eff- uh, preparations and mujahadat and, and ibadah and dua, but a lot of research as well. And he will be presenting uh, s- certain uh, ideas and notions that are prevailing in our community about technology, about media, about internet, about cell phones, uh, with some statistics and whatnot, and kind of highlighting the problematic areas. And inshallah, the second part of the presentation, which I will be doing inshallah, will be focusing on the spiritual dimensions along with solutions to our problems. So do not leave after the first, otherwise if you, you're going to rem- go home very depressed. <laughs> inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. So maybe we can turn the front lights down the book. Make it a little darker. We can see. Somebody can do it. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyidul Mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in Amma ba'd Qala Allah fi al-Qur'an al-Majid A'adhaus billahi min shaytan al-Rajim Bismillah ar-Rahman al-Rahim Alif Lam Mim Thalika al-Kitab la rayba fiyih Udallil muttaqeen الذين يؤمنون من قيب ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم يوفقون صدق الله صدق الله لزيم Respected ulama Dear elders My brothers and sisters in Islam And our precious precious youth Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh I want to thank Mufti Azim and Ikhwan and Dar Salam for giving me this opportunity to share this knowledge with you. And I want to give a couple other thanks. You realize this talk is a lot about giving thanks. Um, I want to thank my wife for helping me prepare this presentation. She makes better everything I do. And my children who helped me out. Uh, immensely. And I thank you all for coming because it's all about you and I. It's truly a, a labor of love. I speak to you as a parent, a neighbor, and as a Muslim brother. Whatever we're looking for in life, we have to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah says in this ayah, truly, in the remembrance of Allah, will we find satisfaction in our hearts. 
topic of, topic of the talk is safeguarding our faith in the information age, protecting our youth from dangers of internet and social media. It's a mouthful. And as Mufti Azim said, uh, it's not a very happy talk, unfortunately. But inshallah, don't worry, Allah is with us. So, here's the problem. The problem is that in our society, unfortunately, we're seeing a rise in unfortunate events. All of these phenomena that you see before you are on the rise. Despite being exceptionally connected, people feel isolated, alone, lonely. There's a loss of self-respect, self-esteem. More anxiety, more depression, feeling rushed, not enough time, suicide, and conflicts with parents is near universal. There's bullying in the playgrounds or in the internet, poor performance at school. United States now nearly every year ranks in the top three or four from the bottom in the 30 most developed countries in education. Violence is on the rise, and particularly violence against women. And as a parent, we have a sneaky suspicion that this has something to do with internet and social media. This talk is probably not what you think it's going to be like. Because putting a little software to try to protect your kids in the computer is not going to be sufficient. This talk is a little bit more deeper than that. People have been concerned about technology and its influence on society for a very long time. Some 150 years ago, Henry David Thoreau, philosopher, author, abolitionist, he said, men have become tools of their tools. Even in his time, he was concerned that people were attached to technology, to material things, therefore implying that there's something more important out there. And by attaching themselves too much, the technology. They were neglecting things that were more important. So, there are some people who are obsessed with the iPod or the smartphone. Then you wonder, do they own the iPod? Or is it the iPod that owns them? That's what he means here. In his times, he said, men have become tools of their tools. Please understand, not everybody has a problem with technology. Right? I use high, very high technology every day at work. So there's good in technology. There's great good in technology. And not everybody runs into trouble. So this doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. But technology affects everybody. And many people it affects in a negative way. 
and some people it may destroy. There are really two things I'd like to communicate to you today. Part one and part two. The first is how technology shapes social interactions. I'll explain to you what that means. The second part is how changes in family structure have allowed technology to flourish and thrive and cause negative effects. Part one, how technology shapes social interactions. What does that mean? If I told you technology changes society the way it looks, you would agree. When cars were invented, you would agree that society looked very different after they were invented, right? But think, when cars were invented, people could, could get jobs farther away from their homes, and they could move farther away from their families. So if a very important technological innovation resulted in expansion of society, so people live farther away from their families, and the role of grandparents decreased. You see what I mean? Technology changing the way we interact with people. And this is very important to understand. So for the first five minutes, I'm going to really drill that point, so to speak, and show you that even small changes in technological innovations can have profound effect. So the next time you see Galaxy 5 or 7 or 9, you say, oh, wow, look at that cool feature. You have to pause and you have to say, what does that mean? What does that do to the society? When the Messenger of Allah وسلم, passed away, the Islamic Empire ex expanded very fast. And you will see very early, very early, that by 750 Common Era, Islam had expanded to most of the known world at the time. So by 750 Common Era, we were there. For about a thousand years, Europe at that time was in what's called Dark Ages. In more politically correct terms, the Middle Ages. You want to be called Dark Ages. So, for a very long period of time, Europe, farmers were living month to month, year to year. They would not know if they were going to survive the winter. Right? So what happened? Well, sometime in the 11th century, three innovations were made. One was something as simple as a heavy plow, a steel plow that could dig the ground a little deeper. 
Second was a horse collar, which was not easy to invent, actually, because of the anatomy of the horse. And the horse was a faster, stronger animal. And the third was the innovation of three-field crop rotation, where you would give one-third of the field rest every year. These three innovations by themselves didn't amount to much, but put them together, the heavy plow, the horse collar, and three-field rotation resulted in a distinct advantage for the farmer in Europe. It resulted in surplus crops and more profits and more free time. This resulted in development of crafts, markets, and towns. They got richer. When they got richer, they traveled and they traded. And who did they trade it with? The greatest empire on the planet, the Muslim world. And what did they do? They learned. They learned algebra. They learned the sciences. They got to know about the astrolabe. They learned how to navigate ships and oceans. With all that knowledge, they conquered the world. All of this started with a farmer and a heavy plow. So very small innovations can have very profound influence in human history. Obviously, it's not simple. You can't simplify history like this. In 1400, nobody knows exactly who the credit goes to, but Gutenberg is credited for inventing the printing press. One invention resulting in publication of books by millions educated the whole continent. All right. This is the beginning of our story. From here on, unfortunately, it's a little bit downhill. In 1837, Samuel Morse invented the telegraph. From Morse code, Samuel Morse invented the telegraph. And a scientist, sometimes they boast, and he said in boast, now a gentleman in Maine can instantly communicate with a gentleman in Texas. A gentleman in Maine can instantly communicate with a gentleman in Texas. To that, a philosopher, a thinker, Emerson, and who is Emerson? The mentor of Thoreau. Emerson said, But what does a gentleman in Maine have to say to a gentleman in Texas? In other words, they can communicate, but what are they going to talk about? Right? So you can text. But what's the content of the text? What's the purpose of the text? How is that going to make your life better? How is it going to enrich you? See, that's what Emerson would say. When Galaxy 579 comes out, he would say, How is this going to make your life better? Follow? Not all technology is good. Because if technology was everything, you could give a smartphone to a drug-dealing thug, and he would be Einstein. That's not so. We have to be thinkers. That's one thing I would like to suggest. See, now what happened with the telegraph is that people started getting news from everywhere. Before the telegraph, the newspaper was all local pertinent news. But after the telegraph, it all became tabloid. Like, Prince of Wales has a baby. I mean, who really cares? Because if you, if you met Prince of Wales, he wouldn't give you two minutes of his time. Follow? 
And that, in fact, resulted in creation of the, what we call today the entertainment industry. So one little innovation changed the face of this country. 1930s, the scourge, television became very common in this country. And thereafter, in our times, the brother, the internet. Television and internet have an exceptional harm to our society. And that's the focus of our conversation here. So the technology that we're going to talk about now and how they influence the society includes, of course, television, the internet, and all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and and the mobile devices, the not-so-smartphones, etc. Right? So all I'm, everything I'm going to say now is going to apply to all of these technologies. So the negative effects of internet and social media, what does it really do? First, I'm going to say five things, five negative effects. First, it creates a culture of entertainment. So, if you want to entertain, you entertain. But after a while, you exhaust the usual recipes. So after one exhausts the usual recipes, people's recourse is to the extravagant, to the fringe, to the exotic. And this results in an erosion of moral values. Society deteriorates because the human mind can come up with a lot of stuff. As I said, people were concerned about such things for a very long time. In 1953, an author named Ray Bradbury wrote a book. This is in the days of black and white television. In the days of black and white television, he wrote a book called Fahrenheit 451. It's a common high school read. Fahrenheit 451, published in 1953. It talks about a society, a dystopian society, a future, a futuristic society where books are banned, actually burned. Books are not allowed anymore. And people are addicted to entertainment. So the hero of the book, his name is Montag, is a fireman. But firemen in those days burn books. That's their job. Their job is to burn books. But Montag, he has a, his awakening because he steals book and starts reading. Something not right here. One of the most impressive scenes in the book is this. One day he walks home, and then there's his wife at home. She's watching TV. She's watching TV, but the TV in this society is three-wall television. And she's obsessed with it because she has created a virtual family in this television. She has created a virtual family, and this family interacts with her. And this family to her is more important than reality, than her husband. So when her husband walks in, forget about getting up and reading in Salam, she does not even acknowledge him. She does not even acknowledge her husband coming in the house because she's watching TV. You say, what's so bad about TV? Watching a little bit TV. 
Because Ray Bradbury was a smart man. In the same book, the wife is suicidal. She's empty. She's depressed, and she does not know why. We have to think. We have to think very carefully. Mufti Azim said, already, this is going to be a tough talk. Oh, inshallah. The second thing is all such technologies, they place an emphasis on the visual. You see the entertainment, you see the news. And this creates a, basically attention deficit, universal attention deficit. And there's a decline in reading. The statistics on reading in this country are so bad, people don't even talk about them. About a quarter of the high school graduates read at a fifth grade level. A third of the college students can't make sense out of a newspaper enough to talk about the topic. So, a society that can read, yet does not read, is functionally illiterate. I'll tell you a story about Frederick Douglass. See, I quote Frederick Douglass in Thor because I can't quote what Mufti Azim quotes. <laughs> but Frederick Douglass, you know who that is? He's the Martin Luther King of the, of the 19th century. He's the most famous African leader. He was a slave, and then he ran away. When, when he was still young, maybe 10 years, 11 years old, his master was very angry at his master's wife, said, because she was teaching him A, B, C, D. And he said, don't teach this boy to read, because then he'll get ideas of freedom. And Frederick Douglass said, I got to learn to read. Because he said, this master was white. And he knew his master was white. He, he knew his master was white because the, of the conviction he heard in the voice of the master. You follow? He said, this guy knows something. He knows this to be true. I'm going to learn to read. So in winter time, he would say his feet would crack. It would bleed because they didn't have any blankets or beds. He would sleep in rice bags. Go in the kitchen, hide inside the rice bags. And when the kids would throw away the books, would grab them and learn to read. Number three. Because of this TV, internet, and social media, children see the world of the adults as chaotic, violent, and perverse. A three-year-old child exposed to television all the time, all they see is chaos and violence. That's their perception of the world. Because television and internet media, they bring the events from the fringe of the society to the center stage. For this reason, they lose respect for adults. And they lose respect in general for society. And they lose respect for history. You'll see frequently in television programs that there will be an insult on historical figures. Teacher asked, so who is J. Edgar Hoover, president of the United States at one time? And the child said, oh, guy who invented the vacuum cleaner. 
is unfortunately, if you don't respect historical figures, you imply that they have nothing to teach you. Number four. Internet and social media and television, they all create certain intellectual arrogance among children. In other words, they get facts of various different kinds. And they know more facts than their parents do. They know more facts than their parents do. So they think, ah, I know more than they do. What do they have to teach? Right? They don't understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because of this intellectual arrogance, they become poor students. You can't teach them. And it compromises parents' ability to mentor and nurture the child. And finally, the internet, TV, and all that stuff promotes promiscuity. I don't think I have to say anything about that. So as a review, the five exceptionally detrimental effects of TV and internet. It creates a culture of entertainment, resulting in a decline in reading, loss of respect for adults in society and history, loss of respect for parents and authority, and it promotes promiscuity. You might find this surprising. But for some people, not for everybody, for, a very, for some people, this technology is addictive. In Japan, there's a certain phenomenon of youth. They're called lost souls. A substantial portion of their youth are addicted to entertainment. They don't want to get married. Their life is in their virtual worlds. And that's a problem for them because they have, their population is going to decline. They're worried. In fact, there's such a thing called internet addiction disorder that's been talked about. Euphemistically, problematic internet use, compulsive internet use, because you try to be politically correct and don't use the word addiction. This terminology I do not believe has permeated the, the mainstream medical profession. It didn't make it to DSM-5, I don't think. But we have our own criteria, the Quran and Sunnah, right? So, but there's recognition that there's, this technology is potentially addictive. And we say addictive, it's not a metaphorical term. We mean addictive, like heroin and cocaine. Some of the signs you may see in some people around you. People have a problem. They have mood swings. They're happy when they're with their internet and social media, and when they're not with it, they're irritable, upset, unhappy. And they have withdrawal. If you take away their technology, they don't know what to do. When people lose their phone, it's like, where's my phone? Yeah. Where is it? Number two, there's a preoccupation and excessive time and activity. I mean, when they're doing something else, when they're working, they want to go to the internet. 
And they spend an inordinate amount of time with such things. Number three, there's loss of control. In other words, they spend more time than they like to, and they try to find new games, new novelty, because they have developed tolerance. It's entertainment. It doesn't hit them anymore like they used to. They become socially withdrawn. They want to be left alone. Finally, there's academic and work consequences. There's studies that suggest time spent on internet, GPA. The more time a child spends on the internet, the lower the GPA. I'm going to suggest something to you. There are different ways to oppress people. And I'm going to suggest to you that technology is becoming very oppressive. You can oppress people by force. Men can be chained. They can be tortured. They can be killed. Their books could be burned. Their heritage could be erased. And truth could be concealed, depriving them of knowledge that could set them free. Their lives are controlled by inflicting pain. This is the old slavery, Atlantic trade slavery. That's one way to oppress people. Second way is the following. Oppressive technology can be potentially addicting. It deprives individuals of autonomy. It distracts them by giving them trivialities, things of no consequence. There would be no reason to ban books because nobody would want to read them. People are numb to passivity. They have no passions for any cause. Truth is drowned in a sea of irrelevance, in this haystack of knowledge that is irrelevant. Somewhere in there is truth. People are slaves of their culture, of the absurdities they love. They are controlled by inflicting pleasure. So this technology is actually quite oppressive. I'm going to go back to the slide previously to share another story with you. You say, okay, truth concealed, knowledge withheld. How is that going to set them free? How is that going to set them I'll tell you a story. Most people I see here are from South, Southeast Hindu Pakistan. In 1943, there was a famine in Bengal. One of my favorite stories. 1943, there was a famine in Bengal. This was during the Second World War. Bengal is, you know, part of India, British Empire. It was part of the British Empire at the time. There were many reasons for the famine. There was a drought, and the resources were diverted for the British efforts because British owned them. And the British took all the resources and to fight the war against the Germans and the Japanese. For many reasons, including these, there was a famine. Conservative estimates, conservative estimates suggest maybe two to three million people in Bengal 
died from starvation and disease. Two to three million people. And where was Gandhiji? He was in jail, because that's where the British put him. When he got out of jail, he went to go visit Bengal. And he saw, like many reporters did, something exceptional. There was no looting. People would not loot. There was plenty of food, but the prices were so high in the stores, they couldn't buy anything. Because they would not loot. Because in that society, it was considered reprehensible to even think about stealing food. People would rather die than steal. Their stories. And by the time they got so weak that they didn't care, they didn't have the energy. The stories of young kids, like sickly little Indian stick figures, wanting to go steal bread from the store, and the store would hit them in the face, and the kid would die. Now, let me ask you this. I know that because I read that. Churchill's Secret War is a book written, written by an Indian engineer. Beautiful book. Now, if you knew that, that that was your part of your history, that was your grandfather or great-grandfather, if you knew that, would that not change your perception of who you are? So knowing history, knowing who you are, shapes you, shapes your personality. So 150 years ago, Thoreau said, men have become tools of their tools. In our times, if only to make you think, I'm going to suggest that men have become slaves of their tools. Somebody could say, well, that's a rather presumptuous thing to say. It's your opinion. I would be happy to be wrong. So somebody could say that. And they would be wrong. Orlando Patterson, he's a historian. Orlando Patterson, he's a historian. is considered to be the authority on the history of slavery. And he studied every single known slave society. And most societies have either been slaves or owners of slaves, including the Sumerian, Byzantines, the Chinese, the Mamluks, and the Africans that were brought to this country. He studied every single society. And he said there were three things that were common to all slave-holding societies. One, the slave's destiny was always dominated by the slaveholders. Slave's destiny was always dominated by the slaveholders. Number two, they were alienated from the people who cared for them. And number three, they were always dishonored. That's the first part of my talk. I'm doing pretty good. How's everybody doing?
Okay. So the first net I think we have to understand. See, technology affects us by, by two ways. By what it does to us. And also, number two, what it does to our relationships. That was part one. Everybody hopefully appreciate that. Second part is this. The family structure changes that have occurred in the last hundred years or so have helped technology influence the society in a negative way. I'll explain to you what that means. Between the year 1900 and 2000, but between the year 1900 and 2000, the average life expectancy in the United States went from 48 years to 73. So average American is living 25 years more. However, from 1930s to about 2000, the average family time that a father would have went from 40 hours per week to less than 17 hours per week. So where's all that time going? Some 33% of the children live apart from their biological father. This was some 11% apparently in 1960. Single moms, 33% single moms, 85% of the, sing, of the mothers, 85% of the mothers, single mothers say they are hurried. They feel like they don't have enough time. Parents do have time. They have time. Average number of hours per week on different leisure activities. 17 hours for men. 14 hours for women. Average number of hours for leisure activities. Average time, listen carefully. Average time a father spends talking to his children in a day. Less than 10 minutes. It's very sad, really. But parents are either absent physically or mentally. They're there, but they're not there. So what do children do when parents are not there? You know, some 40-45% of the grade school kids walk into the house and there's nobody there. That's nearly half the kids. So what do they do? They have no recourse. They bond to whoever's around. They bond to technology. The second thing they do is they bond with their peers. And the peers become their surrogate parents. Kids hang out with kids because that's all they got. I'll tell you a thing about bonding. Another beautiful story in my eyes. In medical school, when baby was born, used to put antibiotic ointment in the eye so it doesn't get infected. The baby, when they're born, they can't see. Can't see. But a million neuron synapses are being created 
per second, babies grow exponential. By the sixth day, baby can discriminate his or her mother from others by her scent. Majority of the people, of the women in this country, go back to work in two to three months after they do it. And majority of them by one year. One more thing. See, in 1970s, they did simple experiments. They created computer programs. This is the early research for companion robots that are coming. Early research. They made a computer program, simple. You talk to the computer, and it talks to you. And all that the computer did was to take the, uh, the question that the person put and just rephrased it. So it would be like this. person would say, I had a tough day today. And the computer would say, Ah, you had a tough day. He'd say, Yeah, my mother was angry with me. The computer would say, Why was your mother angry with you? And this experiment has been reproduced multiple times. And they noticed, just after four or five exchanges, people spill their guts in front of the computer. See, it's not technology how fancy it is. It says people are lonely because they have nobody to talk to. The problem with bonding with their peers is this. When kids bond with other kids, there's no transmission of knowledge vertically. In other words, parents can teach the ch children what other peers can't teach. So from third grade to fourth grade to fifth grade, the child hangs out with the peers. They don't mature because they have no opportunity to mature. So this is what we have to do. Average high school Average high school students spend six hours a day with internet and social media. So we have to cut down the time that we spend with technology and increase the time that we have with the people who really matter. Very simple. And this has to be done by everybody. Parents and kids. The kids that are here sitting, if you sit here for this period of time, you're mature enough to understand. If you can sit still for half hour, you understand this. Therefore, our good is in developing relationships. So tomorrow, inshallah, we'll cut down our time, technology, and focus more on relationships. Inshallah.
We are able to sit back and simply enjoy uh, uh, hours and hours and hours of studying various books that are found in various bookshelves of libraries. Alhamdulillah, we're able to get the gist of all of that, those studies. And the main thing is that we have to take the message forward from here. Um, not only are these very interesting facts, but they put everything into perspective. And as he, I mean, there's so many points actually, I could leave what I had prepared and just expound and um, speak about my own uh, experiences with the stuff he's saying, uh, because each of those points definitely was, uh, mashallah, noteworthy, and I really hope we were able to soak, soak in uh, what was uh, mentioned. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladheena as-safa amma ba'd. فقد قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في معنى الحديث إن الدين بدأ غريبا وسيعود غريبا وطوبى للغرباء وعندما سئل من الغرباء قال في رواية النزاع من القبائل وقال في رواية الذين يصلحون ما أفسد الناس أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم الله سبحانه وتعالى sent the Prophet ﷺ as a Nabi. And the purpose of a Nabi is to inform people of what is yet to come. Naba, to give the news. News of the hereafter and news of what is going to come upon the Ummah. Prophecies. That's why a prophet is called a prophet because he prophesizes. But the prophet's prophecies come right, and not by junk, uh, by uh, by uh, you know haphazardly or by mere coincidence, but because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala informs the prophet. Our Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam mentioned many many things, and he would dedicate sometimes hours on speaking about speaking on various issues. And from the things that the Prophet ﷺ addressed was the trials that were going to come before the end of time. The trials, the fitan. We have heard the word fitna many times. And this is why the books of hadith have a whole chapter, a whole kitab dedicated to this subject called Kitabul Fitan. The book on trials and tribulations. Fitna a word that we commonly use actually means, like the example the Arabs say, Fatana Sa'ihu al-Zahaba. That the goldsmith, he heated up the gold and he separated the good from the bad. Fitna is the process by which a goldsmith separates true gold from the, mix, the elements that are mixed within it, naturally and creates what you have a 22 carat or 24 carat gold. That is what you call fitna. So it involves burning, it involves heating, it involves a lot of procedures that we may say very difficult and painful for the gold. But the end result of this time-consuming uh, process is you have pure gold, whose value is much, much more than something that is mixed with many elements. So the Qur'an uses this word as well, fitna. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Kabut, the opening verse, Alif Lam Mim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after saying Alif Lam Mim, whose meaning only Allah knows, 
says, أَحَسِبَ النَّاسُ أَنْ يُتْرَكُوا أَنْ يَقُولُوا آمَنَّا وَهُمْ لَا يُفْتَنُونَ Do people think that they will be left alone without being tested? Do they think that they can walk off easy into Jannah simply by saying, let me go, I'm a Muslim. I come from a Muslim family. My parents are from India, Pakistan, Arab world, whatnot. Can't you see? Can't you tell from my accent? I'm going to go to Jannah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. Instead, yuftanun, they're going to get tested. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ فَتَنَّ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ Indeed, Allah has tested those who came prior to this ummah. فَلَيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَلَيَعْلَمَنَّ الْكَاذِبِينَ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it very apparent for the world to see who are the true Muslims and who are those who do simply mouth, lip service and say that they're Muslims but they're not. They say they're Muslims when it's convenient. And then they leave their faith when it becomes inconvenient. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that this will happen to this ummah. So my dear brothers, the ummah has always been tested. But it's in just different flavors, different colors and different ways. Today, we live definitely in an age of fitna. An age of tests. And this test has come to us in a very general manner. Such a manner that barely, barely anyone is saved from the difficulties of this test. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam once in Madinatul Munawwara, he came out of his house and you could see from his face that he was very perturbed. And he said that I see the fitna and the trials descending upon the homes the way raindrops fall on a community. Can, anyone get, can anyone's home be saved from the rain? Absolutely not. When it rains, it pours and it covers everyone. Rasulullah prophesies a fitna that is going to come, that's going to befall the ummah, and it's going to affect every single individual. No one will be able to save themselves. The Prophet in another hadith, he explained what type of fitna that is. And he said, the fitna will be such, so bad, The one who is sleeping will be better off and more safe than the one who is awake. The one who doesn't know what's happening, Surah, he doesn't know what's happening. He's better off than the one who is awake. The one who is lying down is better than the one who is sitting. What is better? Meaning he's more safe. The one who is sitting down is more safe than the one who is standing. Meaning the more apparent you become, the more out there in the spotlight you become, the, the greater the danger of you being afflicted. It's like a war zone. There's bullets going all over the place. So when bullets are being sprayed from left to right, it's not very prudent to stand up and wave your hands. It's probably better to find a quiet spot and hide inside. Lie down, act dead so that you get saved. The Prophet ﷺ said, that is the type of fitna that's going to come. And once he began to explain in great detail this fitna, SubhanAllah, from morning till evening, he explained everything, what's going to happen. And then he mentioned that it will become times, will get so bad, that a person will pass by a graveyard. 
and he will go to the grave and he will roll over in the dust يتمرغ. he will roll over in the dust in front of the grave Allahu Akbar and he will beg Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala يَا لَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ مَكَانَ صَاحِبِ هَذَا الْقَبْرِ Oh Allah, I wish I could be in place of the man who is six feet under and then the Prophet ﷺ explained that the reason he's saying this is not because he's suffering from poverty, but rather Rasulullah explained that this man will be wealthy, this man will be healthy, this man will have honor and respect in society. Any and everything that one would desire, he will have. But the reason he will be wishing that he would have died it's because he's afraid he will not be able to hold on to his deen another day. He's afraid that he will lose his faith. He's clinging on by his fingernails. And he's begging to Allah. The hadith says he will beg to Allah. That Ya Allah, take me away. Because I don't know if I'm going to remain a Muslim for another day. I'm trying as much as I can. Abdurrahman ibn Salma radiallahu anhu came to visit Abu Hurairah radiallahu And then he began to make dua for Abu Hurairah. And he said, Oh Abu Hurairah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you shifa. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu at that time, he mentioned that do not make that dua, I'm ready to go along the lines. I'm ready to go and leave this world. And then he started speaking about death. That a time will come that death will become so beloved to people. Subhanallah. He specifically singled out the ulama. That ulama will do anything to die and leave this world. Because they will see what others don't see. They will see the trials coming at them. And they will say, we do not have the strength to face this. And then one of the sahaba said, a time will come when death will become more beloved than cold water on a burning hot day. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah said, that the ulama are such that they wake up and they see the challenges and the difficulty and the evilness of trials before it comes. While the rest of the people wake up after it's gone. After the, after the tornado comes, strikes, destroys all the homes and then leaves. Then people wake up and say, wow, that was pretty bad. The few remaining alive people. And the scholars and the people of deen are like those meteorologists week in advance, five days in advance, two days in advance are saying, let's move, let's move, take shelter, go into the basements. But the rest of the people say, what are you talking about? It's a bright sunny day, let me do some gardening, let me enjoy time with the family. Why do you want to deprive us? You are causing unnecessary harm and difficulty for the ummah. When a day when we can enjoy this beautiful weather with our family, you're asking us to go in the basement, in the dungeon, in a dark scary place? and leaving this beautiful day outside? What is wrong with you? Why are you all so stuck in the Middle Ages? Why are you all wishing and desirous that the Ummah, instead of progressing, should regress? And instead of being leaders of the world, should become the scum of the earth? That this, the reason we are where we are today, all of the problems from indecency, from violence with the Muslim communities, from murder, from uh, you know, so-called backwardness, 
from not having the resources of med- medical resources and technological resources in and, and the Muslim countries is because of the scholars, because of the ulama. Al-Ayadu Billah. Ibn Taymiyyah says that. That they are the, like the meteorologists, this is my example, this is, that they are warning at a time when people are still in slumber and sleep. And that is why they are made fun of. They're poked at. People ridicule them. But the intelligent one is the one who wakes up to the fire that is spreading in the village before it hits his street. Once this fire, raging fire hits our street and our neighbor's home, then it is way too late to do anything. Then it is way too late to do anything. My brothers and sisters, that fitna is a time which we, you and I live in. No doubt. Where the Prophet said, I've explained to you raindrops. The way no one can get saved from raindrops, similarly the fitna is all over. And then the Prophet gave another example of fitna. He said, It is like portions of a dark night. What does that mean? You see the beautiful sun. Maghrib time hits. Sun sets. In the matter of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you barely have any idea what's going on. You're busy at work in your office. And you look up at the window. What do you see? Pitch dark. How quickly was that? So quickly it becomes pitch dark without you even realizing. Rasulullah says that the fitna before the end of time is going to be like that. It's like the creeping you know, fog that comes in slowly like the cat. Which we have no idea. When it's there, but when you wake up, it's there. Meaning the fitna is coming back and slowly, slowly. But surely enough, a person will wake up to realize it's too late. And then he explained, when does it mean it's too late? يُصْبِحُ الرَّجُلُ مُؤْمِنًا وَيُمْسِي كَافِرًا A person will wake up as a believer, and by nightfall, he will become a disbeliever. And a person will go to bed at night as a believer, and by morning, he will have become a disbeliever. And why is that? يَبِيعُ دِينَهُ بِعَارَضٍ مِّنَ الدُّنْيَا He will sell his faith, his ideals, his morals, his values, for a partly sum of this world. What does that mean? That if I need to get into that university, if I need to land in that job, I need to find a spot to get promoted in the company, that I am ready to do whatever it takes and whatever I'm asked to do. If that means neglecting salah, so be it. If that means neglecting jum'ah, so be it. If that means I have a full sunnah beard and I have to shave it, so be it. If that means I have to change my name, and make it sound un-Arabic and un-Islamic, so be it. That's just the beginning. This is not kufr. This is just the beginning. But eventually, they keep on raising the demands. And a man then at the end of the day will say, $100,000 and that's what all I have to do? That, that, that? Sure enough. I don't have a job. You come to me, you want to give me 100000 And you, this is all I have to do? Why not? Why not? Rasulullah already prophesied that. The people will compromise their faith to such an extent that they will end up, probably unintentionally, but will end up doing such things will definitely take them out of the fold of Islam. So the root, one of the root causes of that, fitna, that binds us all together, like I had said earlier, 
is technology. Is the internet, it's the cell phone, it's the TV, all of those things that are being plugged in, as they are serve, as they serve benefit, as they serve many good things, mashallah, we all use it every day, but at the same time, they can potentially cause a lot of harm. And I fear I have to say that ismuhuma akbaru min nafa'ihima, as the Quran says, regarding wine, that the harm of and the liquor, the harm of this is more than the benefit. No doubt, red wine has certain benefits. No doubt. But the harms outweigh the benefits. And unfettered, uncontrolled use of the internet and cell phone most definitely can lead us in that direction. This is a test. Why is a test, my friends? Because it, fitna is that what becomes between you and Allah. Which, fitna is that which makes it difficult for you to follow your deen. Fitna is that which makes it easy for you and I to commit sins. What, is, what, what has cell phone, internet introduced us to? TV. One of the greatest harms of this is that it has made us lose our haya. What is haya? What is haya? I, I usually say that I, don't, I haven't found a proper word in the English language to translate this. Some people uh, mention modesty. And that that could be the, the meaning of haya. Others have said bashfulness. But we know that all of these words have certain bad connotations. And that some, sometimes you have to go to the psychiatrist to treat yourself for these inhibitions. Right? So definitely haya is not something that you have to go to the psychiatrist to go see. So for treatment. An inhibition or um, some type of timidness. Haya is, 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 is a sifa. It's an attribute of a Muslim. مَوْلَاكَ لَا يَرَاكَ حَيْثُ نَهَاكَ Your Lord does not see you where He has asked you not to be. Your Allah does not catch you in a place where He told you you shouldn't be there. That's haya. It is a natural attribute that the strongest of the strong, the most, you know, wealthy people, physically strong people, knowledgeable people, all of them have that haya of true Muslim. It simply means that I am going to stay away from something which will cause my Allah to be upset at me. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned in a hadith, he said, Istahyu min Allah haqq al That you need to have haya from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fulfilling the rights of haya, meaning properly have haya with Allah. Before, and I don't have time to discuss the various types of haya. Haya with parents, haya with teachers, haya with colleagues, haya from angels, haya from yourself. Let's just stick to haya with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you asked the Sahaba radiallahu anhu, he said, Inna nastahi. Or, oh Rasulullah, most definitely we have haya, especially from Allah. Rasulullah s.a.w. said, Laysa dhakum. That's not what I'm referring to. وَلَكِنْ مَنِ اسْتَحْيَا مِنَ اللَّهِ حَقَّ الْحَيَاءِ The one who has true haya, the way you ought to have haya from Allah, what does he do? فَلْيَحْفِضِ الرَّأْسَ وَمَا وَعَا He should protect the head and whatever in the face and whatever, whatever it comprises. Meaning the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the mouth, the nose. All of that should be protected. وَالْبَطْنَ وَمَا حَوَا And he should protect the stomach and whatever is around that. Meaning the private area. 
as well as a stomach. Only halal should go inside, and of course, the private area must be protected from haram. And he should remember death and the day when his bones are going to become disintegrated. Rasulullah said, This is what haya means from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wahab ibn Munabbah, he said a beautiful point. He said, Al-Iman Uryan. Iman is naked. Iman is naked. Walibasuhu at taqwa. And the clothing of Iman is taqwa. Wazilatuhu al haya. And the beauty of that Iman is haya. A hadith of the Prophet Al haya wal imanu qurana. Iman and haya are two friends, are two companions. If you have one, you know how we have friends. One is there, you know, in the masjid, the other one's there too. And if one you don't see in the gathering, you know the other one's not there either. So Iman and Haya are together. When one of them is taken away, most definitely the other one will follow suit. A community, a Muslim community that has lost Haya, my friends, is on the verge of losing their Iman. And how beautiful the poet has said, إِذَا خَلَوْتَ بِرَيْبَةٍ فِي ظُلْمَةٍ إِذَا خَلَوْتَ بِرَيْبَةٍ فِي ظُلْمَةٍ وَالنَّفْسُ دَاعِيَةٌ إِلَى التُّغْيَانِ فَاسْتَحِي مِنْ نَظْرِ الْإِلَهِ وَقُلْ لَهَا إِنَّ الَّذِي خَلَقَ الظَّلَامَ يَرَانِي Poet says that when you are in this darkness, in the night, and you are alone with the sin, like your cell phone, like the internet, you have an option of texting, you have an option of visiting any website that you like, at that time, it's the darkness of the room, darkness of the home, solitude of your university classroom, solitude of your car, solitude at a friend's house. Remember, he says, and your nafs, your carnal desire is pulling you towards that sin. The poet says, فَاسْتَحِي مِن نَظْرِ الْإِلَهِ Be ashamed of the sight of that Allah. And tell your nafs, Address your lustful soul and say, Have shame of that Allah. Because that Allah is not blinded by this darkness. For indeed, He is the creator of darkness. The creator of darkness most definitely can see through these layers of darkness. Can see through the layers of the blankets. Can see through the closed bedroom doors that say, Do not enter without permission. Can see through the email that have password protected, can see through those computers and cell phones that are password protected. Allah Jalla Jalaluhu can see through all of that. He is the creator of the creator of these things. So what happens? A person who has lost haya, then there is absolutely no bounds, there is no limit to how low he will fall. Rasulullah said, إِذَا فَاتَكَ الْحَيَا فَفَعَلْ مَا That when a community or a person loses haya, then you might as well let them do whatever they want. They will, they will bring down destruction upon themselves. My dear brothers and sisters, if, if there's anything, if you want to describe to a non-Muslim who a Muslim is, Rasulullah if you if you look and read the explanations of haya, I would, I would definitely say, if you want to introduce the Muslim concept or Islamic concept to someone, you would say a Muslim is an individual who has haya. Period. Haya. Haya from Allah. Haya from people. Haya from himself. Then how are we going to show face? Not to people, to ourselves. How can I look in the mirror when I lead two lives? 
One inside my home, one inside my bedroom, one with my friends on Saturday nights and Friday nights, and one in front of my parents, one in the masjid. And how many of us from the youth outside, when they eventually, after having fallen to the bottom of the pit, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevates them and brings them back once in a while. They, when they start speaking about their lives, you seriously come to this conclusion that this man or this woman was leading two lives. Completely two opposite lives. To the extent that I have met people who live a life as a non-Muslim, not activity-wise, but aqidatan, belief-wise, they are a non-Muslim. The only time they become Muslim is when they come home from college for the long weekend. And then they put on the topi, they'll don the hijab, and they'll come with the parents grudgingly to the masjid, simply to save the face of their parents, and simply to not upset them. That is the extent of dual lives that we are witnessing today. So what happens? A person does not have haya from himself. So this is the most important characteristic of a Muslim. There is an incident in the annals of history that an attack, a, 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 woman was, a lady was informed that her son had passed away in, in the battle. And as a mother, loving mother of a child, when she was informed, she obviously became very anxious. And she, began, she went to run to see what had happened. But as she went to go see what happened to her son, she ensured that she took the veil with her and covered herself before going. Someone remarked, at this moment also you are worried about your veil. And the answer she said was that, I may have lost my son, but I definitely have not lost my haya. Because we Muslims don't lose this. We will go down deep into the ground. My brothers and sisters, do we know that the janazah of a woman, salah, and the ghusl is so different from the man. And that while, what I'm talking about, the, the kafan, the number of pieces of cloth that you're putting on a corpse, a corpse that no one's gonna see again, is multiplied, increased, two more extra pieces of cloth. And the husband is not even allowed to see. That, that lady was passed away. Only females can see her. To that extent. And that when she is lowered into the grave, Subhanallah, that you will not pick up the body for everyone to see, just the body, not even the box. You will have it covered. And as she's being lowered, you will have a chadar or some covering on top of the grave as she's being lowered down. That is what you call haya. Our women were trained that they would give their life up, but they wouldn't give this up because this is exactly what they have. And not just women, men as well. This is what we own. This is what identifies us. A community that has lost haya cannot claim to be progressing in any direction. What type of world are we living in right now? Where haya is forcibly ta being taken out from us. And I quote you a personal story. 1993. My God, that's 20 years. 20 years ago. Way before all of these gadgets. Very, you know, a time when things were bad. But definitely nowhere near this. And it happened with me when I went to fourth grade. That was the first year I went to school. 
Public school. Alhamdulillah, I was memorizing Quran before that. So I went there, Valentine's Day came. Like it comes now. 20 years ago in a small little town. And I remember when the teacher had said that tomorrow for Valentine's Day, everyone should bring candy. Okay? And I had absolutely no idea what this is about. So the next day, I don't, I don't know if I brought anything or not, but one thing that definitely stuck in my memory till today is that she made all the guys and the girls stand up in a row. One guy, one girl, one guy, one girl. And she brought, students had brought out the, that candy, what's that, twist, what's that called? The, huh? Twizzlers, the red long ones. Twizzlers, you know what I'm talking about? The gummy type of long candy. And, kid you not, she gave each of this couple one Twizzler. And she said, you have to start eating it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it was so kind, you know, to this small child who didn't know how to deal with these situations, who wasn't trained, but no idea, first time being thrown into a classroom like this. My luck, I had a mentally retarded boy left over. He was the only boy that was left. And she's like, you, and I remember his name as well, but I don't want to mention it. You and him, you guys can share. I said, okay. So I, he, he was in front of me. I said, hey, Gary. Or whatever his name was. Uh, how about we split this in half? And you can enjoy it, and I can enjoy it too. And he's like, yeah, that's great. And I gave him his half, and I had my half. And Okay, this is 21 years ago, 20 years ago, in fourth grade. Fast forward that today, I have no idea what's going on. But I can guarantee you it's much, much worse. I was 13, right? No, I was 9. It was 9. 13 is what? 8th grade. The average age of... We studied this in, you know, a few years back and the stats are probably changing as we speak. That the average age that the youth lose their virginity in, in American schools is the age of 13. Age of 13. You heard me right. This is where you and I majority of our uncles sitting here, my father, my elders, this is where we take our kids and we die to put them in the school. And we're so excited and so proud that my school, my son, alhamdulillah, he's going to school, first day of school. And mashallah, he came out with this grade, and this, you know, this award, and this and that. Do you have any idea what's going on there? You think my parents knew that I had to, that happened to me that day? Probably they're hearing about it now. No, you have no idea what's going on in your school. And I, I promise you, I promise you, if any of you were to get permission to go sit with your 8th grader, and ninth grader, and 11th grader in school for one whole day, you will never ever take your son or daughter back to school. I'm sure all of you sitting here, all of you sitting here, if you're sitting in this masjid at this hour on Friday night, you're with me on the same page. You just don't know. You just don't know. You just do not know what's out there. Yes, it's, this is what I'm talking about. That dunya, dunya. A graduate, a, a, a prep school, a nice high school, will get my son through college. So what? Then what? After college, he'll be able to get a very high position. Then what? He'll be able to earn a lot of money. So if that means he has to see what you didn't see as a man at the age of 60, you want your son to see at the age of 13, you say, all right. You want your daughter to see at the age of 10, what your wife hasn't seen at the age of 50. You say, all right. Because this is exactly what happens in our society. That they train you. They pull this stuff out. I read to you. I read to you an excerpt 
of, of, of this lady, Wendy Shelton. Sh sh Wendy Shelton. She wrote this book, a great book, A Return to Modesty. She's a secular Jew. She wrote this amazing book called A Return to Modesty, Discovering the Lost Virtue. And remember, she's not writing from, an, uh, from a Christian point of view or a Jewish point of view or whatnot. From a completely secular point of view. But it's an amazing read. And if, I, if you give me permission to read this, where well, once a young woman led, had to be ashamed of her bedroom experience, today she is ashamed of her bedroom inexperience. When not long ago an unmarried woman was ashamed to give public evidence of her desire by living with someone, today she must be ashamed to give evidence of romantic desire. From sex education in grade schools to, to, to co-ed bathrooms in college, yes, the college where I attended, the year I was graduated was the year they started co-ed bathrooms. And that is just down North Avenue, six miles down. Today, young women are being pressured relentlessly to overcome their embarrassment, their hang-ups, and especially romantic hopes. And meanwhile, the problems young women struggle with grow steadily, more extreme, from harassment, stalking, date rape, anorexia, self-mutilation. Both men and women endlessly lament the loss of privacy and of real intimacy. What is this all about, she asks. This is the lost virtue. This is not something to be ashamed of. She mentions a story of a, of a college where she attended. And they had co-ed bathrooms. She was shocked. She said, I grew up a secular. I was like, okay, I wasn't grew up going to church or synagogue, whatnot. But this was too much for me. So I said to my roommate, this is, is this real? And she said, the roommate told me that get over it, gal. You have to get comfortable with your body. Those of you who understand this, understand what I'm talking about. This happens not only in that extreme case, but in the gyms of all the high schools and all the grade schools, when you have public showers. When you have to go to pee and take a public shower. What percentage of the Muslim community is exempting themselves out of that? What are we told? You have to get comfortable with exposing your body. All the youth here know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm toning it down. They, they can tell you more. So this is a society we live in. The haya is being pulled out. But now we're taking it a next step forward. That we have the internet. And we have that internet not in the school only for 8 hours a day. Not only in the office of our house. But now it's on our phones. And now that phone is not simply to be there when we're in use. When we're traveling only, son, here, take the phone, you know, Allah forbid something happens, call me. Instead, it is with us, with me, and with all of us, everywhere. In the masjid, in the restroom, in the office, in the classroom, wherever you go, it has become, if I may add, our 11th finger, our third hand, without which we don't move. So it brings along with it all the filth and that, all that baggage with it. So when we choose to give our son, our daughter, whether they're 15, 18, or 10, a new phone with a full data plan, my brothers and sisters, I kid you not, it is more dangerous than giving a loaded gun. You may give, definitely a loaded gun will protect you from an intruder. But would you seriously entrust a loaded gun to your 15-year-old, a 10-year-old? The chances of him harming himself outweigh the chances of him protecting himself from the intruder. While playing, experiencing that gun. 
he'll harm himself or his friend. If a person dies out of a self-inflicted wound or a shot, inshallah, we hope from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, since it was an accident, it was a child, Allah will resurrect him amongst the shuhada. Yes, we've lost a boy. Very sad. But inshallah, he's going to a better place. But if this so-called beneficial device called a phone is given in the hands of our child, and then he begins to experience and see and watch and learn about those things which he was supposed to lead his whole life never thinking about, I fear the harm that it's going to do, the psychological, the spiritual harm that it's going to do to him, which is irreversible, unrepairable, outweighs the harm of a self-inflicted fatal wound from a bullet. Let's think twice. Eighth time, Thanksgiving sales. When you and I go run and purchase a new phone and give it to our son and daughter, think what are we doing? But we say, my son is asking for it. Well, if he asks you for a gun, would you give him? If he asks you for a box of dynamite, would you give it to him for fireworks? You wouldn't. Because that, they're children, that, that's what we expect them to do. They are going to ask us for these things. But you and I are parents. And we have to ensure that we make decisions that will not harm our most beloved youth or, and harm our children. So the first fatality in this day is a fitna and the internet age is haya. Haya leaves that community. And I may add, the children, they know how to model starting from two-year-olds. How do they learn? From a one-year-old, from, from a six-month-old. They smile. Where are they learning this? They look at others smiling, so they smile. Everything they do is modeling off of their elders. We have reached to this level now, that there are children being brought to court at the age of 12 and 13 for committing acts against their own siblings. What, why? Because they're modeling what they saw on the internet. And we are seeing incidents like this within the Muslim community. And that news has reached us. Within the Muslim community, the youth are doing unthinkable things. Things that the biggest thugs of the past wouldn't do are doing this now. How simply modeling off of what they saw. They never thought about it. They say, oh wow, this is something interesting. And then they see who they have access to their siblings, their cousins, little kids around them. This is a reality, my brothers and sisters, which I am not simply trying to instill fear, but I am, without getting into details, giving you an idea of what is happening in the Muslim community. It is already quite late. But alhamdulillah, if we wake up now, there is still hope. There is still some hope. What, is, what happens? Rasulullah wasallam. what is another evil? The Prophet ﷺ said, he prohibited a lady from describing لا تصف المرأة A woman should not describe her sister or another lady for her husband كأنه يراها so much, with so much detail as if though he can see her. Simply saying, oh, the, the, she was dressed like this. She was wearing this. This is how she is. Rasulullah ﷺ prohibited our community from a wife saying this to her husband. Imagine my friends, when a wife comes home and shows her pictures from her camera phone of the wedding, of the party, of the night, the, you know, the mehindi party. Subhanallah, this is what the phone has brought to us. 
A time when ladies thought that they're completely safe. Where no one is watching. But some girl pulls out her phone. Some lady pulls out her phone. And now, that is all over the place. There are websites now, and I was reading about this this morning, of people who've become millionaires. Simply, you know how? By getting hands on compromi- compromise, compromising, compromising pictures. And pictures in which ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends supplied. Posting them up on the internet. And then demanding money before they pull it down. Where did that all this come from? From that again, the unhampered use of technology. Apparently it seems very beautiful that we're taking a picture of the masjid. But this is why we tell our students here, that no, stop the habit. When was the last time, those of our elders here, imagine in 70s and 80s and 90s when you're here, if someone were to walk, and would you take a massive digital camera or you know, put on some of the Kodak camera, a big one, come up here and start taking pictures of all of us. Almost all of us would, would frown at that and say, what are you doing, bhai? What's wrong with you? You're masjid You don't have respect for the masjid. What are you talking about? Right? Am I not right? That was a common thing. Anyone had deen. But now, sins have become so common that no one disregards that. No one sees a problem with taking a picture with people in it Mixed gatherings, wherever it is, and then they tweet it, they put it on their Facebook. Rasulullah said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive everyone except for the mujahideen. Someone asked him, Ya Rasulullah, who are the mujahideen? Not the mujahideen, the mujahideen. The Prophet said, The mujahideen are such people who commit sins at night, and Allah, out of His mercy, covers up their faults and sins and does not allow anyone to see them. But in the morning, they wake up and in the words of today, post it on Facebook for the world to see. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gets so upset at these people that I saw you in the middle of the night committing the sin and I did not expose you. And I showered my mercy upon you by saying, maybe at Fajr time you'll seek forgiveness. Maybe the next day at Jum'ah you'll seek forgiveness. And I didn't let your parents know about it. I didn't let anyone else knock on the door and get in and see what you were doing. So that you may repent. But you have the audacity to get up the next morning and post it. For not one person, for the whole world to see. So one of the other faults and problems of social media and technology is that mujahara has become common. People do not mind expressing their sins. And actually if I may say, boastly, speaking boastfully about their sins. And this is one of the most gravest sins is istighfaf with dhunub, to look down upon sins. To think of it as minor. My Ustad, Mufti Muhammad Ali, one day, reprimanded one of my classmates in school, in the madrasa. He gave a hadith, the way we have hadith here after Dhuhr every single day. One of the students stands up and gives a hadith. One of the students gave this hadith in Arabic, even though usually it's given in English. He gave in amazing Arabic, a very lengthy, beautiful hadith to 650 students of the school after Aisha Salah. And it was about fornication. Hadith about of Al-Ainu Tazni Wal Yadu Tazni that the eyes commit fornicate, the hands fornicate, the feet fornicate, the tongue fornicates, every portion of the body fornicates, Al-Qalbu Yazni, the heart fornicates as well. And eventually, the private part comes 
and either does the actual sin or not. That's like the nail in the coffin. But the Prophet ﷺ said, every portion of the body commits zina. Don't think that I'm simply looking. I'm not, I don't do anything, I simply look. My friends, wallahi, this is the zina of the eyes. So what happened is that he translated this hadith. And he used the word zina, obviously. So you know what he reprimanded him on? He said, Ye loves bar bar kehni ki aapko kya zarurat hi? Hadith mein aaya hai, aapne ek dafa hadith mein keh dete, tarjuma karte ho, bar bar iski kehni ki kya zarurat hi? Jitne dafa is loves ko bola jayega, uski burai dino se nikal jayegi. Zahen pe uska boj nahi hoga. Jis cheez ki burai, jis loves ki burai zahen se nikal jaye, dil se nikal jaye, to phir us amal ki burai bhi dil se nikal jayegi. Jab amal ki burai dil se nikal jayegi, so he said, when you, when you repeatedly use the word fornication, zina, why did you do that? You could have simply said that action, or that deed, that evil. He said, the more you repeat this word, the more people's ears get used to hearing it. The more they begin to, they get used to hearing it, the evilness and the, and the, uh, of, uh, the evil nature of that sin leaves their heart. The disgust, the repugnance of that sin leaves their heart. And when the dip- repugnance of a sin leaves the heart, then it becomes very easy to commit that sin. Subhanallah. Look how far-sighted our ulama are. This is something that how, how casually we use words amongst our own pa- in front of our own parents, in front of our teachers. What is that telling us? Today we're using these words, tomorrow we wouldn't mind looking at something along those, and Allah forbid, Allah forbid that the road continues. My brothers and sisters, these are simply few of those very problematic issues that are arising from the use, from the, from the uncontrolled use of technology. Now getting on to solutions. The number one solution, and the last solution and the number one solution, definitely is to inculcate taqwa. There's nothing else that's going to save me, and there's nothing else that's going to save your kids. And nothing else that's going to save you. You have to have the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How long are we going to be looking at their phones? How long are we going to have blockers? <laughs> the youth are 10 steps ahead of us when it comes to technology. We know that. We cannot possibly outdo them in that. How long are those parental controls going to work? Number one is that we have to inculcate the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That we don't do stuff like this. How are we going to inculcate in the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Is that we have this discussion at home. We speak about the qudra and the power of Allah. We allow them to feel inspired and at the same time afraid of Allah Jalla Jalalu. Yes, afraid of Allah Jalla Jalalu. That Allah is looking at me. You know that simple story that all of your mothers told you? Of the mother who gives candy to three kids and says all of you, go and eat this wherever Allah can't see you. So one kid goes and hides behind the sofa, another kid goes behind, hides behind another door, and the third kid comes back crying after five minutes. His brothers are there. They've already eaten their lollipops, and the third one, he's crying. Mom says, why aren't you crying? He says, Mom, I've looked and looked all over the house, but I couldn't find a place where Allah's not watching me. He says, well, that's a lesson I wanted to teach you. Right? That's so true. That same lesson, I have to learn. You all have to learn. That wherever we are, behind closed doors, there's Allah Jalla Jalla who's watching. So this taqwa is going to get instilled by number one, speaking about the greatness of Allah, speaking about the Jannah, speaking about Jahannam. Let them desire Jannah and Jahannam.
and uh, fear Jahannam. Have halaqat at home. Read from a book of fadail, from virtues. Have a tafsir halaqa at home, where everyone at home is participating. Read from one of the authentic commentaries of the Qur'an. Read stories. There's nothing better than stories. They really have an amazing uh, effect on the children's minds. If we have bedtime stories, whatnot. But not just bedtime for one child, all of us put together. And along with that, what comes with taqwa is to ensure what we eat is halal. And what we drink and what we wear is halal. And the income by which we purchase everything is halal. All of this leads to taqwa. Alhamdulillah, as bleak as it may have sounded so far, but when you want to raise your kids even in this country, properly, you can. Remember what I said at the very beginning. The world is an open field. Pretty much everywhere is the same. So I know of an individual here. MashaAllah is a physician. He called me one day, and he said, I'm at the museum. I said, okay, great. And he said, well, the problem is that, I need to ask you a question. So what's that? He said, we're here with the family, but the people here are very, you know, subhanAllah, scantily uh, uh, dressed. And there's, it's not a very good scene. There's girls, there's women all over the place, and they're not dressed properly. And I'm here with my family. What should I do? Is it permissible for me? to go and see the exhibits. Well, I realized he drove all the way to come to that museum and try to give him a diplomatic answer. Trying to find some leeway how he can go about. He says, well, my six-year-old son says, Baba, we have to leave right now. This place is very bad. He said, then why are you calling? The mufti is in your own house. Why are you calling me? You have the answer right there. I said, leave. If the son is saying, subhanAllah, that you raised him like this, that he says, I can't stay here. I need to go from here. Your six-year-old son then definitely you should leave. How many of us would ever even consider that this is a question to be asked? The more we see, yes, we're going to see the show. Yes, we're going to see the fireworks. My friends, all of that is in the, is in the vision right there. Just the one sight. Our ulama say that if a person who goes, sits in the company of a shaykh, subhanAllah, goes and khuruj fi sabi'llah and jama'at for, not for three days, for 10 days. You, see, you think 10 days at the kaf is powerful? Imagine four months. Imagine four months struggling in the winters of Syria or the hot summers of Africa for four months. Those ulama say that when you come back for four months, if you once, once glance at a non-mahram, the noor of that four months is gone. So repeated, repeated exposure every single day. Someone said, you people are perverts. You get affected by what's around us. We, I go to college, I don't see a problem. I go to university, I go to you know, uh, a corporate world, I see women all over the place. I never get even attracted to that. What are you going to say? That is exactly what I'm talking about. That's called de being desynthesized. You're not strong, you become desynthesized. The shaytan, that it's now, the heart has become so blackened that you don't recognize what's evil. It's like the one who's sitting in a slaughterhouse. And you walk in, Qurbani day, to, to slaughter the animal. Any of you have been there, you know how bad it is. And Bhai, you're like, Bhai, put on some air freshener, itar. He's like, for what? What are you talking about? There's guts, blood all over the place. And he's like, for what? It's great. And he, munches, and he, he chugs down a, you know, a juice and, and eats his cheeseburger. And you're like, how could you? But he does this every day. He sees nothing wrong with it. So when we get accustomed to sins, we no longer see the evil in it. So number one thing, my brothers and sisters, is to inculcate taqwa, and these are the various ways that we talked about. Inculcate taqwa through halaqat, 
through protecting ourselves and our youth from, from seeing wrong things, from eating halal, from drinking halal, and from earning halal. Number two, is that we have to limit it. Hudud, anything, even sugar, salt, very nice things. But if you take it out of limit, it's harmful. So internet technology must be definitely used, but to a limit. So we should possibly create technology-free zones in our homes. I mean, it's getting late. So I cannot expand on the benefits of why I'm saying each thing. But alhamdulillah, inshallah, you'll understand. All the problems of families falling apart. Husbands and wives parting after so many years. Children rebelling against the kids. Uh, children rebelling against the parents and so forth. Siblings fighting amongst themselves. A big portion of the problem can be solved if we have cell phone-free zones. Especially the bedrooms. Especially the bedrooms. Children's bedrooms and our own. Before you go to sleep, son, you're going to put the phone over here. What do you have to do? You have to go to sleep. Then you want, how many fathers say they walk in the thing and they tick, 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 they hear it. And it's one o'clock at night, you got up to use the restroom and you hear tick, 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 tick. And you see under the bed covers, there's a light flashing there. This is happening everywhere. Simple solution is, this is not the time for that. 10 o'clock, whatever it is, it's time to go to sleep. You don't need a phone there. And definitely you do not need a computer there. You have a computer in a public place. For the husbands and the wives, married people, older people, still. Not to say that we'll indulge in something haram, maybe sometimes do. Uh, be surprised. Person's been married for 40 years, 30 years, you think you'd be happy. All of a sudden he finds fisk online. Some new so-called love. And you ask him, what in the world do you think? You got four or five kids with this lady. And you address the lady as well, what's happening both sides. You have four or five children from this side, what are you doing? But no, you know, كُلَّ جِدِيدٍ لَزِيزٌ Everything new is nice. After 30 years. These things never crossed the minds back at home in India, Pakistan, and Arabia where we came from. But here, because we don't have opportunity, now the opportunity is the tip of your fingers. So that is why no cell phones in the bedroom. Turn it off or put it on charge. One scholar, he told me he was having, he was having effect in his marriage. To this extent, what he did is he put the cell phone in his car, in the garage. He, he said, there's no reason for me to be receiving any calls once I enter my home. I've been out the whole day. Why should I listen or talk to anyone now? Now is my time with the family. And he advised me this too, gave me this advice before I got married. He's like, leave your cell phone in the car to save you a lot of problems. SubhanAllah. Um, along with that, is that a, the question, bigger question is, that smartphones themselves, my humble opinion, because we're here to benefit, I'm just sharing with you what I think. It's up to you. Is that they should not belong in the hands of the youth. How many of you, maybe not even one of us is going to alert, take advice to this, but this is my responsibility to say what I think is right. Is that definitely you need to use the internet. Every single college has computer labs. Have a nice desktop, the latest desktop at your home. Use that. Use, bring, buy a navigation system for the car. Whatever else you need. But we don't necessarily need to know exactly what the temperature in Madagascar is as we speak. We don't need to know that. 99% of the stuff, the searches that we do are completely useless things. And Rasulullah said, Oh Allah, I seek protection in you from knowledge that has no benefit. So, my advice would be, is keep it on simple phones. And uh, uh, I hope, inshallah ta'ala, very soon that I'm going to be able to make that switch as well. We're good. And I, I share with you that the other presenter, mashallah, has already made that switch. From an iPhone 5 to a flip phone. Because, you know, if you're speaking about it, you have to believe in it. And if you believe in it, you have to act upon it. So make dua for me.
that uh, next time we meet, uh, you know, that have uh, been uh, enabled to figure out how to take care of the needs of the community without ruining our own lives. Um, another thing is that we need to ensure that we make a habit of good company for the youth. Good company, finding out that they have good friends. Alhamdulillah, every Friday night we have a program here for the youth. Every Friday night we have a program. This is a great place for the youth to build relationships. For the boys now, inshallah, sooner, sometime sooner than later, we'll have for the sisters as well. Build relationships in the masjid. And as parents, we should know who the peers of our children are. Get to know them as well. Get to know their families. Get involved in community activities. At the masjid, at the park, wherever. Physical outdoor activities. Instead of being glued to the technology. We have to. We cannot say, okay, son, daughter, TV is out. No cell phone, no data plan. And sit here and just look at me. I can't work like that. Right? We have to come up with solutions. One father, he's like, oh, my son's coming back home for winter break. What should I do? I said, okay. And no, he doesn't do this type of stuff. I said, I need you to plan out for 10 days where you're going to take your son. And this son is, you know, in his 20s. I said, come up with, you're going to go to a restaurant. You're going to go to a, uh, you know, subhanAllah, an ex- exhibition. You're going to go, of course, every night to the Fajr and Isha. And you're going to go to a certain program. You know, a mixture of all sorts of things. You're going to go play basketball in the gym. I said, make a 10-day program. He says, every time my son comes back, he goes back with his old friends. And he goes back to what they're doing. I said, yeah, because you're not providing an alternative. Provide an alternative at home, and inshallah ta'ala, he will not go back to those things. Make dini life at home with parents fun, basically. And lastly, again, we'll go back to amal. Dua, istighfar. Istighfar, excessive seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Istighara and mashwara. When, before we make any decision, before we make any decision for our kids and for ourselves, seek the advice from Allah and seek the advice from knowledgeable, righteous people. Even if it means, which college should I send my son or daughter to? Should they go in dorming or should they travel back and forth from home? Yes. Every, the more things we make mashara from Allah and from the people istikhara, the, 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 the larger the benefit we will have. But this a'mal, this is surrounded with a'mal from the top to bottom. And in the middle, when this taqwa will come, the taqwa in itself will teach you, my friends, of how to handle your problems. The taqwa will give you, and with the ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya amanu, O believers, in if you fear Allah, which I said at the beginning, if you fear Allah, yaj'allakum furqana, Allah will give you the criteria, and Allah will give you the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Today we live in a time of fitna, when black and white has become the same. Evil and good has become the same. Right and wrong has become the same. Ma'roof and munkar has become the same. We cannot differentiate between what we should do and what we shouldn't do. How much is allowed and how much is not allowed. What we need now, more than any book to read, is taqwa. Taqwa will be the guide, as, as we've been told, istafti qalbak, take the fatwa from your heart. If you have a heart that has got taqwa, your heart will lead you to what is right. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah jalla jalaluhu, to grant all of us inshallah ta'ala, his fear, his taqwa, at the same time his love. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us in, these, in the, the days of trials and tribulations. And that He allow us to lead a life with iman, grant us death on iman, and raise us with complete iman on the day of judgment. That He protect the youth, our progeny, 
from leaving the fold of Islam, from having doubts of Islam, from following the ways of others, from being affected by society, from being affected by the culture that surrounds them, from being affected by the media, from being affected by the ills of, of, of the social media and the internet. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He allow us, inshaAllah, to use these tools for the khidmah and for the service of deen. And then we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us the leaders of morality, of modesty, and of haya in this country. Those of you who have questions, you can stay back and ask. And of course, the program has come to an official end now. And also, we request you, if you uh, for, uh, for next month, January 13th, inshallah, uh, will be the... What is it, Hafiz Omar? What date is it? 17? January 17th, Friday night, will be the next seminar. And we are open to suggestions about the topics. Any feedback definitely is, is appreciated in order for us to uh, you know, accommodate the needs of our community. Uh, and Alhamdulillah, the PowerPoint as well as the speech has been up, uh, is, will be uploaded online so you can share with friends uh, as well. Jazakumullah khair.